Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a special two-part conversation with Mark Reniker, MD, and Michael Lerner as they discuss medical advocacy for people with cancer and other serious conditions. This conversation is co-presented with Healing Circles. This is part two. So um, I just want to, uh, as we start this second session, I just want to uh, sort of summarize where we uh, are. Uh, Mark Reniker, uh, a sort of founder of uh, clinical advocacy uh, as a professional area for, for uh, many people who've been interested in it, some of whom he has trained, has been talking, um, reprising a talk he gave for a Jennifer Altman Foundation lecture in 1992 that he's updated. And so he's been going over uh, uh, advocacy oncology with the title uh, Stones Often Unturned, from the motto Leave No Stone Unturned. So he's been talking about the importance of the completeness and accuracy of the medical record, uh, how extremely frequently the testing has been incomplete. Um, he's talked about molecular and genomic testing, individualized chemotherapy and live cell chemosensitivity testing, protecting future options through cryopreserving tumor, uh, and additional imaging. Um, and additional laboratory testing, immunological testing, and additional laboratory testing tumor markers, circulating tumor cells, and liquid biopsies. Then we were into this, this uh, area called additional testing terrain panels and functional testing, where he mentioned Keith Block, our colleague, the integrative oncologist in Evanston, Illinois, who Mark just described uh, as having begun to surf with him again at a Commonweal cancer um, uh, uh, meeting. And the work that Keith does on terrain panels. Um, and uh, what I wanted to bring up there um, is that uh, further into that discussion in your handout, which we will have up on the website, you say oncology is just now realizing that the gut terrain may play a role in how well some cancer therapies work. Genova Labs has long offered remarkably comprehensive testing of what is now called the microbiome, namely the various subpopulations of gut bacteria, including recommendations on how to treat pathogenic bacteria with uh, sensitivity testing for both standard and natural antibiotics. I mentioned to you just before we started that I was at the annual conference of the Institute of Functional Medicine in Austin last week. And functional medicine, is, along with integrative medicine, is one of the fields. There are perhaps half a dozen of integrative medicine writ large. And this particular uh, meeting, the Linus Pauling Award, which is their top award, was given to uh, Robert Roundtree, who is a well-known functional medicine doc in Denver, Boulder. And his talk essentially was largely on, uh, on gut bacteria. And I, I deeply believe that this issue of gut bacteria 
is is really part of the future of medicine. I mean, by any standard, because there are these deep relationships, among other things, between the gut and the brain. The gut and um, and so one of the themes of this meeting is that if you want to take care of your health, to befriend befriend your gut bacteria, pay attention to your gut bacteria. That antibiotics can drastically shift the population of gut bacteria, and that gut bacteria affect your moods, affect all kinds of levels of function, can affect immune function, and so on. So you go on to talk about thyroid function and uh, bone loss and osteoporosis and so forth. But uh, I just want to check in with you as to whether, from your point of view, which, which often informs mine and takes me in directions I haven't taken, um, you see this issue of gut bacteria as and gut terrain as a quite central to many issues in health, including cancer. Right, and also to say that in the functional medicine field, or more broadly, what it would be called naturopathy, mm -hmm. which they're natu naturopathic right. medical schools, right. they've always held that the gut, the gut bacteria, are central to health, period. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether it be cancer, neurological disease, heart disease, right. what have you. And lo and behold, they were right. That's exactly, and that's what's now emerging with the new science, yeah. that we can actually see it. Right. Yeah. And to some extent, um, it came from the Human Genome right. Project. Mm -hmm. Craig Vintner, who was the private side of Francis Collins at NIH, he was the one who developed these, you know, spot DNA sequence testing, who began to realize that, you know, on a square millimeter of your skin, there were a million different kinds of bacteria, mm -hmm. different kinds mm -hmm. of bacteria, most of which have never been described before. He was just looking for original DNA sequences. So it turns out any part of the gut you look at, and we all thought that somehow we're completely sterile everywhere. I mean, you know, except in the lining of the gut with these dirty bacteria that you know, lead to feces, God forbid. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out the bacteria are at work throughout. Mm -hmm. And so this, this sort of synergistic relationship we have with the so-called microbiome, it isn't just solely the gut. No. There are some parts of the body where apparently the bacteria don't go, but not many. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, again, you know, you, one way of looking forward is to look back and if you think of how primitive it seemed, the view of the body and medicine, I don't know, 100 years ago, the view we have now is equally primitive. Absolutely. So how to, how to then, then um, grab onto that as a new model, that new idea, in terms of one's sort of health and well-being, particularly in dealing with uh, cancer, I think it's key to not look to physicians who don't have the training or background, as none of us do, none of us, short of sort of going out and developing it um, through foundation medicine, excuse me, uh, functional medicine kind of training. In my case, uh, quite literally, I was taught 
integrative medicine by the patients I work with. Mm -hmm. Because what they would consistently ask me to do was to sort of watch their back, vet whatever it was that they were thinking to do. And I say, okay, I'm always, I'm interested. I'm just, I'm curious anyway. So I would be talking then to one doc or another. I'd read the background material, sort of, I've always been good at um, taking the 10,000-foot view and being able to sort of see uh, the culture around it that emerges, or the subculture, as it were. And um, I've always been good at, this sort of goes back to my exploration side in terms of looking for surf around the world. It's been a matter of um, studying maps and studying bathymetrics and sort of figuring out ocean bottoms and where waves will go and, and, and... so mapping the right now the so-called sort of microbiome, the, the sort of applied work around it, this is tough. This is tough. Uh, the guy who's been in this probably the longest is Leo Galland in New York City, mm-hmm. who uh, has sort of been the, the person writing the most about it, publishing the most on it. And he and I collaborate on cases all the time. Mm. We talk. Uh, and he refers me interesting cases. I refer him interesting cases. Mm. And um, this is something where you, you, you just have to get on the train <laughs> as it's going. And for, the, for the patient, for the health professional. Um, and to use whatever proxy measurements you can. I've mentioned here, I think, Genova Lab, which used to be called Great Smokies. Um, is probably the best going. It's actually not that expensive paying out of pocket. You can get a, a really good analysis of the gut for a couple hundred bucks. Um, and then the application of it. This is, this is the crux of all of this material here. So you get these results. You get these tests. You get these consultations. You get the path reviewed. To act on this information implies having to somehow change the dynamic in your case and often your relationship with the physician or people you're working with. So advocacy is about how to take that information and use it for change. And in the course of, of, of as it were, affecting or changing, and again, this is just basic community organizing 101, mm-hmm. um, if you're the one with that intent, you're in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I would say to, you don't need an MD or a PhD or a ND or DO or whatever to actually begin to gather up these sort of information from new models, new paradigms, the cutting edge, and to find ways to sort of introduce it into the relationship, into the equation of the people you're working with, it's all, it's all in how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and my way of doing it has always been more from the sort of um, Columbo school, which is to sort of be the family physician, not threatening, I'm not a fellow oncologist, I don't have standing, as it were, even though I might actually know more about a lot of things than they might. And to just kind of present it as it is, which is, is pretty interesting. 
It's kind of, who knew? The microbiome. Mm-hmm. Well, look at these results. What, what are we going to do about that? Uh, mm-hmm. And then you just, it's play, literally. I mean, every doc, as it were, actually, I, I would say, tends to respond pretty well to a, an approach like that, mm-hmm. which is uh, probably, you know, when people are friends and mm-hmm. they talk, they collaborate, it's, it's, it's more playful. Absolutely. Even though it's, it's about a very serious subject, but that's just the way we are. Mm-hmm. It's about building trust. That's what interests me so much in the work we do with a new school, with the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, with Healing Circles, that when you create these learning communities where people come together to learn in some form or other, what happens as they learn, if you have certain criteria of commitment to the science and civility, as people learn together, you begin to build trust and you begin to build what a guy named Paul Bourne calls deep community. And deep community uh, in a learning community encourages creativity and solving complex problems right. because people begin to trust each other enough to not be holding on to positions. So the fun, of, again, what I do yeah. is since I work with patients all over the country, all over the world, you know, right now, I mean, you know, I have patients in about five different countries mm-hmm. that I'm communicating with pretty directly. Um, certain practitioners, as it were, that they're working with sort of filter upwards to mm-hmm. me that I then come to know. And through doing this for as many years as I have, there's this wonderful network. Of You've people. got a network all over the world. Oh, that's, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And so when I need to vet as it were, some other practitioner whom I may not know or what have you, it's not difficult to because they'll feel comfortable saying to me what they really think. Mm-hmm. And so it, you, you really, the, the network just keeps growing. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that's probably something that is a privilege um, because of, I don't know, being a UCSF associated person perhaps. There's a certain cachet to that mm-hmm. even though it, doesn't really add up to that much. Uh, but uh, um, that's what I draw on. Mm-hmm. There's a lot here that I don't think we can cover in detail. Um, and I guess I'd like to ask you, before we get to the case, uh, yeah. and before, we, well, let me, let me draw something out and then ask you what else you want to draw out. On page 14, other important considerations after you've gone through all the diagnostic possibilities and the therapy choices, you get to something which to me is is critical. Um, These uh, considerations of exercise, sleep, sexual functioning, emotional dissociation, false hopelessness, and intentionality. So to me, those are vitally important. And I wondered if you'd spend a little time on that. Sure. So just to say that um, when patients come to me, again, I'm not going to treat them. I'm just going to sort of help them, as it were, elevate their game. But I've learned there's two conditions that prevent that work from going forward. First and foremost is pain. If the person's in physical pain, forget about talking about all these groovy things that can be done. Pain is the problem. Pain has always, to my view, been far more dangerous, really, 
than cancer ever can be. And uh, so I'll literally just stop everything, drop it aside. It, it becomes a pain consult, really, of how we're going to get you better treated, get the pain under control, because this work can't take place. The second condition is hopelessness. Um, and I get a fair number of cases like this where there's a family member who is hopeful, who is dealing with then the patient uh, who is completely hopeless. And so they're going along with this well-meaning adult, son, child, husband, wife, whatever. <clears throat> and there's, uh, it's just not working. It's, it's, it's I mean, you don't, it, 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 there's a complex complexity to it, but the diagnosis has to be made as to where it came from. Is it that every person that this person had ever encountered who had cancer died? Sometimes. Is it that, say, a mother who had the same cancer died? Quite often. But the most common is that the physician, often in the first meeting, hit them over the head. Tells them they're going to die. Correct. Yeah. And they'll say it's because, you know, you have to realize that your cancer is incurable. This is the word. And um, at that point, it's literally, I mean, the life force just drops. And so to, to do this work requires hopefulness on the part of the patient. It also sometimes means uh, helping them <clears throat> realize how that came to be. And then what you'll find is that facts, statistics, papers, that doesn't help. Um, this is the power, I think, of Commonweal, for instance. Uh, it can be the power of the internet. Um, to read of long-term survivors, people who were cured. Uh, one of the things that still infuriates me is every time some celebrity is diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, in the first sentence, in the newspapers even, will be, you know, of course, this is an incurable disease. Um, and hearkening back to work from MD Anderson, where they've been following people for years and years and years, there's always a percentage of people with metastatic breast cancer who basically go into complete remission and stay in remission. Mm -hmm. And the percentage of people living a long time with stage four breast cancer, the most recent data, we've, you and I have talked about this before, it's, it's over 20% now mm -hmm. um, for five years and even 10-year mm -hmm. periods. And... Every on, what so galls me is that every oncologist in their practice, they always have a handful of patients or more of metastatic breast cancer, stage four, whatever, who are alive and well. And, you know, in our world, we would call them exceptional patients. I found them not necessarily to be so rare that we would even call them exceptional. To call them exceptional is even almost to buy into the model. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, the the rescue, as it were, is to the person has to begin to believe in their own ability to get well, mm-hmm. whatever the disease, mm-hmm. and to recognize that this disease, the tumor, what have you, never mind that somehow the chemotherapy or whatever is being given credit for sort of keeping it in check or bringing it into remission, it's their body that has done that. I mean, that kept it contained. I mean, most cancers, every, every scientist would agree, most cancers were present for upwards of 20 years in the body. And somehow the body is keeping that under control. So, uh, false hopelessness uh, is a treatable condition, um, and but that has to be done first. And I would just say for any person who's trying to help someone else, um, when you realize that, I mean, it, what you have to do is you have to take a couple steps backwards and to basically see where that came from. And what you'll often find is it'll be the oncologist words that triggered it and that effectively it's a post-traumatic stress disorder underway and interestingly just to draw attention to it and let let it be discussed even it can often then sort of begin to lift Mm -hmm. but this that takes time and 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 trust you know the way i talk about it in the cancer help program is i say for every cancer there's a distribution curve of outcomes and what the oncologists do is to give you the median, mm. more or less. And what that ignores is that there are a whole bunch of folks on the left end who are getting lousy medical care, who are depressed, who may want to die, you know, just they're ready to leave. And so that's pulling to the left. Whereas the people who come on the cancer help program have an inner locus of control. They believe they can actually do something for themselves. They've taken the extraordinary step of getting there and spending a week together working on this. And so from my point of view, the median is completely unlikely to be the mean for survival. And that from my point of view, if, as Marty, our friend Marty Rossman says, you, you can't know how you're going to do, but you get to vote. Hmm. And that you can vote to negotiate your way as far out that distribution curve as possible. And at the end of it are the complete spontaneous remissions. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, I just, I I put it to people that, you know, none of us can know how this is going to work, but there is nothing wrong with going for it. You know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with going for it. What I try to do is to say it in a way that if the cancer continues to progress, they don't have a sense of failure. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, so in other words, if you go for it, you can't know that that's going to work, but there is nothing wrong with the decision to go for it. And if it progresses, this is a difficult illness, you know? So that's sort of how I do it. One of the Simonton meetings here mm-hmm. that I loved, the theme that weekend that you had put mm-hmm. before us was... Mm-hmm intentionality yes and this is um, both for the patient what their intention mm-hmm. is but we often or at that meeting we were speaking of it more in terms of if you're the physician and you don't think this person's going to make it mm-hmm. 
how that affects the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I would say, and I've heard this so often mm-hmm. from patients, I don't elicit it, but it comes forward. They'll speak of, they feel that their doctor treats them as a dead man walking. Mm-hmm. That that's how they feel when they enter the room. And there are very few circumstances where I recommend firing your doctor, but that's one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's malpractice, mm-hmm. and it's so obvious to the patient and the family. There is a point when you you know you you'd hate to blame the victim, as it were, but it is almost that uh, situation where some sometimes you literally have to liberate them from mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. whatever it takes. So uh, that, to me, sometimes will be, will be more therapeutic. Um, mm-hmm. As it were, to fire a doctor, mm-hmm. that'll lower tumor markers, I'm sure, if ever that study were done. <laughs> so should we move to this, yeah. this case uh, history? Is there anything else you want to bring up from the... Well, there's tons there, the but, tons but there. you can read it. Yeah, yeah um, good. Let me, let me begin on this other one, which is an, it's an experiment even just to present a case or two here. Right. Um, and just to say that this comes from a case, this first one, that my colleague Eric Jameson, who's somewhere back there, um, Eric and I, Eric was at that, the Commonweal Conference that we put together on clinical advocacy. And one of the things that came out of that conference three years ago was, gee, there aren't any offerings in medical school education to teach advocacy. So Eric and I uh, applied through UCSF, you know, the, to get a course approved that's an elective, but where now fourth-year medical students will come and work with us to learn advocacy medicine. So this, this first case was with the first medical student this past year who came to study with us. And so what I want to do is just walk us through this case and just try to illustrate some of the advocacy pieces in it. And it's not a cancer case, so, but I just am happy to present it anyway. So this is a patient named Mary, who's 24. She's a pre-medical student at a prestigious Boston University. She comes, live, lives in outside of Sacramento, Northern California here. And since she was in her teens, she has been doing global health in such an incredible way of just get, getting there in Rwanda with you know, starving children and trying to help them. And she continues to do this. Um, and then about four, four and a half years ago, she begins to have a condition where uh, every time she eats, she would get excruciating pain just several minutes later, such that she couldn't eat anymore. And she uh, began to lose a lot of weight. And <clears throat> so she, being in Boston, you know, is seen by the top gastroenterologists in the country who works her up and tries to come to some diagnosis on this. And the diagnosis did emerge 
idiopathic gastroparesis. Now, idiopathic means we don't know what the hell it is. Gastroparesis meaning there's some problem in the gastric system. Well, uh, so they decide that she needs a feeding tube. And uh, so it's inserted into the intestine. And so she's now getting 24-hour-a-day feeding. And this has been uh, for the past uh, almost three years. It so happens that uh, Eric, when he was hiking the John Muir Trail and was coming out of the Sierras, happened upon her parents, who uh, they began to talk about their daughter and realized what Eric does. And so they asked if we wouldn't take her case. And so Eric asked me, and I said, well, I think this would be perfect for the new medical student that we're going to have, because it's, we don't have no diagnosis. It's, it's, she'll, she'll relate well to this uh, about her age kind of thing. So Jessica, the medical student, fourth-year medical student, um, was presented this case, daunting though it may be. And so the theme here is fear no one. So again, lowly medical student, top doctors in Boston. She'd also been seen at Mayo. They'd not been able to find what was wrong with her. They had put this feeding tube in. She pretty much was just, maybe she would outgrow this condition. Who knows what it was? And so we held our initial meeting with Mary, the the pre-med student. She was at that time working in a township in Cape Town with her pack running the whole time with the feeding tube in. Doing this incredible work, though, with uh, women um, around uh, social justice. You're listening to part two of a two-part conversation with Mark Reneker, MD, and Michael Lerner. And uh, I don't know what it was, but it was either the optimism of Mary um, or the dynamic we had in the room as we were Skyping with Mary in Cape Town. But it really, my intuition was we could crack this case. Mm-hmm. And so when we ended and I said, to Jessica, the medical student, I said, we're going to figure this out. And she said, oh, okay. And uh, so what we instructed Jessica, the medical student, to do was to read deeply into this diagnosis of idiopathic gastroparesis and see where that goes. It'll obviously involve a whole number of possible diagnoses that could explain this but to follow each one of those out and not just read abstracts, but to actually get the articles and read deeply and to try to, as it were, map out as it, the whole world of possibilities of this. And I also said to get the complete medical records and to just go through it with a fine-tooth comb and to do the Mr. Dooley, trust everyone but cut the cards approach which was, don't assume that, that these were done, you know, at Harvard or wherever, that, they're all, that they were done right. So, Jessica, the medical student, du- duly began all this. <laughs> and uh, 
Right away, she comes back to the office and she has this paper and she says, I think I found it. And it was something called median arcuate ligament syndrome, which involves some of the ligaments in the diaphragm that, uh, where the artery that goes to the stomach, when they tighten up, it'll sort of kink or grab the artery so the blood flow stops to the stomach. And it's like having a heart attack, really. You know, uh, no, no blood supply. And she said, but I'm, I'm sure that they tested for this. I mean, it's not that rare. And so we go looking into the records, and it looks like they didn't. And I said, well, you know, you might want to, maybe there's some explanation, you know, maybe email with this doctor in Boston or whatever. And so sure enough, it, it comes forward that they just didn't happen to have the right machine to do that test, which you would think they would, being the top center in the East Coast. But they didn't. And interestingly, they, they didn't do a functional testing, which would be do the test, the imaging, whatever, after she's eaten something to see why that is. They did a gastric emptying study, sort of a way of looking at something like that, but neither Boston nor Mayo had done this other testing. So what we realized was that there needed to be two steps back, sort of do get this testing done. And again, the advocacy thing here would be not to ask them to do it. They didn't do it in the first place. They didn't maybe have the right machine. They've argued, they did argue, probably reasons why it wasn't this. But we're looking for reasons for why it is this. So we did find a center that could do this testing. And the testing was done, and it basically showed... Nope, that's not the explanation. It was read as normal. So here comes then the fear no one advocacy piece. The medical student realized that there was one doc in Chicago who really was the expert on this condition and said, well, you know, do you think we should maybe still maybe have him look at the results of that scan, that test, to see if, if it was read right? So... She gets in touch with this guy. He hears the case. He's happy to look at the scan. The scan is sent to him. The scan that was read as normal turned out to clearly show this condition. And he, uh, he said, look, just to be sure, send her to me. I'll repeat these tests. Um, but I'm pretty sure she has it. She goes to Chicago. He does the tests. She has it. He does an operation. Eric and I are sent then, after the operation, we're waiting to see how it went, what have you. It's a picture of her in her hospital bed, eating a plate of eggs and smiling. And that was the case. Uh, so, the take-home... Um, be rigorous. Fear no one. You have to own the case. You have to own the literature. You have to own the records. Um, you have to even be, if when, when there's disappointment, when the initial scan is read as normal, you still, still push forward. 
right. Let's do at least one of the cancer cases. I was looking at three and four particularly, but you pick one that will at least do one of the cancer cases. Let's do uh, case three, Jimmy. Yeah, right. Um, <clears throat> psychotherapist, about 50 years old, who years before had noticed that he had this funny growth on his foot and uh, would go to different doctors, family doctor, even an orthopedist, even to a podiatrist, who would say, oh, no, that's, don't even worry about that. That's nothing. They didn't want to biopsy. They didn't want to do anything about it. And then finally, it begins to grow. Then it's biopsied. It's a sarcoma. And it's a soft tissue sarcoma called a fibrous sarcoma. And at that point, it was so large that in a sense, the only way it could be treated was to amputate the foot. And he was furious, understandably, that it, even despite his going to doctors, it was sort of allowed to continue. Um, and the foot's amputated. There's this, you know, they're, they're, this, he's told that that's probably going to be enough. Yes, it, it can recur. It can become metastatic. And sure enough, about a year and a half later, he turns up with a metastasis in his lung. And this is surgically removed. And that's the point at which he sought my help, um, wanting to look at any ways to keep this from coming back as he was told of the likelihood of it coming back and probably even needing to be doing chemotherapy at that point to help prevent it from coming back. And so we set out to develop a whole integrative plan, sort of Keith Blockian kind of things in terms of nutrition and nutraceuticals and sort of mind-body and exercise and uh, sort of well, trying to be as aggressive as we can. And it recurred. And it recurred this time back down in his leg. And at that point, again, the dis disappointment would, such, would be such that you'd almost just want to say, look, all that integrative stuff or whatever didn't work. Um, and my attitude or what I suggested, I said, look, let's not give up. Let's just double down. I mean, I, I really don't think this was done, you know, we were sort of shotgunning with these ideas. Let's be more specific. At that point, there were now these methods you could do molecular profiling. You know, you could look for the targets for uh, what you would, you know, use in terms of uh, nutrients in the way you eat, but also in terms of nutraceuticals. And... Um, so we did that targeting. We began to say push the doses specifically to hit these certain targets. And the other part that came forward was that he realized that doubling down meant spiritually he wanted to pursue that more deeply. And in his case, it was, um, interestingly, Zhao of God. I didn't write it here, but... Mm -hmm. So he went down to Brazil, was part of that community. John um, of God being a favorite mystic healer in Brazil. Right. right. Um, <clears throat> and also then things began to come forward as to he um, realized, you know, there, he really would, rather than be a psychotherapist, he probably was really more interested in his music and his writing. Mm -hmm. um, and so he really began to 
transform through this almost mystical, spiritual uh, change. And so not long ago I got his three CDs that he'd done of his music and, you know, ever appreciative for my help and so on. And now he's uh, about 10 years in complete remission from metastatic sarcoma that never came back. Beautiful. I also would like to ask you to go over case four because ovarian cancer is one of the ones we see a lot in the cancer help program. And here's Aubrey uh, surviving recurrent then metastatic ovarian cancer for 19 years. Can we talk about that? Sure. Um, early 40s, mother of two, very religious. Um, early on would sort of talk to me about her use of prayer and the church. and mm-hmm. um, Stage 3C, ovarian cancer, surgery, standard chemotherapy. But even back then, she went beyond that. She pushed it to get intraperitoneal chemotherapy, which is recommended more now, but back then really wasn't. Um, and she had a recurrence uh, in her abdomen, pelvis, and the lymph nodes. There was another surgery. There was radiation therapy given. She had a lot of toxicity from that, had a, a foot drop, severe neuropathy, um, lost sexual functioning, really, from the radiation. Um, and she had been doing some integrative work, as it were, in terms of supplements and nutrition. But again, most people don't quite know how to assemble these approaches. And they will sometimes just be the advice of a friend or something they read about, and they add that in. And it's it's sort of a hit-and-miss kind of shotgunning approach. Uh, So we began to really dedicate ourselves to sort of what best to pursue, at what kind of dosing... um, for what intention. And she uh, had even yet another recurrence. And at this point, they wanted to uh, do this really, really high-dose radiation. And, and she just said, no, forget it. I'm not going to do that. So doubling down for her was to begin to look at the underground therapies out there. And so she'd heard of one that intrigued her, which was sort of a Native American sort of medicine from herbs uh, from Wyoming, a farmer up there apparently, who makes this available. And she wanted me to vet this therapy called Vita Elixir. Um, And what was driving it now was the tumor had actually moved into her neck. It was a stage four uh, at that point, uh, ovarian cancer. And so I'm, I was happy to learn about this and nothing in the literature, nothing that I could find anywhere other than to talk to Ralph in Wyoming. He's a good old boy and kind of fun to talk to. And, but it was evident to me he was doing it for the right reasons. It wasn't to make money. It wasn't some sort of that feeling of some of the over-the-border clinics. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a business. It was, he kind of believed in this. And... Uh, he said, look, I got to tell you, though, 
you know, it just tastes god awful. And you know, some people they just they put it on their feet even, and that can help them sometimes. So she got the stuff and <laughs> she tried it a couple of times. She said, "Forget it. I'm not. I'm not taking this." And I said, "Well, you know, Ralph said you make it maybe to like put it on your skin." I said, "You got these lymph nodes right in your neck. You just put them on the lymph nodes. See what happens." She said, "Okay." And it stained her skin purple. And uh, she said it was kind of interesting, though, because at first, she did this each night, the nodes swelled up a little bit, and then they began to shrink. And so she called me kind of wondering what to do about this. And, and I said, well, I think you know what to do. And she said, <laughs> you're right. I swallowed my first dose last night. <laughs> And she said, I, you know, I've, I can get past how it tastes. So she went into complete remission. Um, and then she stayed in remission for more than a decade. I mean, it literally scans, CA-125, everything went back to normal. And this is the kind of thing you sort of hear about second or third hand. But in this case, I was hearing about it firsthand and had all the records and, and the like. Um, and then... For whatever reason, it reappeared not so long ago in the neck again. And this time, you know, she had stopped taking the bioelixir, uh, but she tried, to, tried it again. It didn't work. Um, she was doing other things, uh, but ultimately it came down to removing some of the tumor. We did chemosensitivity testing with Nagorni. Um, there were a couple of really, really good hits on not what would be the normal chemo normally chosen. She did the chemo, went back into remission, stayed in remission almost for two years, and then more recently, recurred. And as I'm fond of asking, you know, do you have any idea why you think you recurred? This last time, she said, oh, I know why. And she told me that she had just discovered that her son in his 20s was a meth addict, IV meth addict. And that was so devastating to her. Um, she was convinced that really, and I believed her, that that was probably the driver of the recurrence at this point. Um, and so, you know, much of the time we spend on the phone is about her family, her son, her sort of codependence, if you will, her awareness and sort of consciousness around this in relation to her cancer. Um, I've often said to Eric, you know, it's really sometimes this work, 90% of it is psychiatry, really. I mean, I, I, I keep making the point that all these sort of new therapies and all these new tests and all that, finding out about them, that's the easy part. Mm -hmm. it's sort of implementing them, sort of getting the person to want to sort of include this or rise to it and then getting the people around them, the family, the doctors, to, to, to participate in it. In this case, she, she'd had this wonderful oncologist who was quite open-minded, who was kind of willing to go along with all this stuff. Uh, and, you know, never 
made fun of her or whatever. And if she, when she needed chemo, he was he was there for her, as it were. But the rest of the time, he was pleased to have an exceptional patient. Um, and he, like many doctors, oncologists these days, I didn't really talk too much about this with her, but around the same time it recurred, he had accepted a job with Big Pharma and had quit being her doctor. And we're still kind of struggling now to find someone who really uh, works well with her. Um, so she's 19 years out now. Uh, she still has some tumor in her neck. And we're engaged right now in she'll be scheduled soon to remove one of these nodes. And the intent in this case is to develop an immunotherapy for her. And given that she literally has almost responded every time to most everything we've tried, mm. um, when she has been the one who felt strongly that this was the mm. next step to take, um, I, I expect that the immunotherapy will work. So I want to use the remainder of our time to address two other forms of hopelessness that I can imagine listeners or people here would feel. One is that you have a waiting list. It's hard to get to see you. Um, there aren't... Gwen Stritter is an example of a wonderful uh, 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 advocate who you know and recommend in the Bay Area that some people may be able to see. But there aren't a lot of people, at least to my knowledge, uh, who have the skills, the training and the availability to do what you do. So from the patient point of view, there may be a sense of hopelessness of putting together, even if they're hopeful that they could do something, there may be a sense of hopelessness of putting the team together that would enable them to do this. And then from the point of view of the people that we're hoping to help in healing circles, which is people who want to learn how to do this, uh, there are absolutely many important dimensions of this that somebody at, you know, a skill level like mine, which is I have no medical background and, you know, there are pieces of this that I can do, but there are pieces of this that I can't do, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's the hopelessness of the potential uh, clinical advocates that they will develop the skill set and the networks necessary to be able to do this kind of work, even if they can figure out how to make a living doing it and everything else. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to just take um, some time now to address those two questions. One is, from the patient perspective, if you can't see Mark Renneker, or arguably you can't see Gwen Stritter, um, how do you do this? And then from the point of view of somebody who would like to be an advocate, you list types, patient advocates, health advocates, patient navigators, ombudsmen, healthcare advocates, clinical advocates, lay advocates, concierge practitioners, so on. But, you know, if we to break it down in simple ways, there are the people who are physicians or have adequate medical training to, like a nurse practitioner, to really help somebody with the medical side. But then there's a bunch of us who have experience as lay people, but we don't begin to be able to do the medical side. So in terms of those two forms of 
I won't say hopelessness, but of concern with how we get there. What would you suggest? Yeah, I, I would point out that when I started doing this work, I didn't know how to do this work. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a fund of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I would still maintain that my best work is on cases where I know nothing about the diagnosis. I mean, where I, that type of condition. And that I'm starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. So just to disavow one from the sense that even though I may sound filled with information about, mm-hmm. say, cancer, uh, I think when I actually have that information, to some extent it hinders me mm-hmm. because the playbook almost is written. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of using something from one patient, as it were, thinking that that would apply to the other. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, I think you're already, it's a red flag. So, the case number one, Jessica, the medical student, mm-hmm. you, you and I both know, I mean, a medical student doesn't know much, right. really. Right. But uh, intentionality, mm-hmm. uh, willingness, mm-hmm. A real commitment to master the material. And that can be a person right. who's never right. had any experience in biology. Right. I can't tell you how many... Ex- talk about exceptional patients. I'm going to talk about exceptional spouses, fathers, mothers, right. who went from zero to, to 100 miles an hour yeah. in short time. Yeah. Through hook and crook and textbooks and, you know, the internet. Um, you know, there was a patient's father I worked with on a glioblastoma case. We had a standing appointment every week. Mm-hmm. What he wanted me to do was to teach him mm-hmm. how to look for and use information mm-hmm. that would help his son. And we, we had this amazing collaboration that went on. And I, we would we'd get all the proceedings, all the abstracts from the neuro-oncology meetings and the, the cancer oncology meetings. And we would scrutinize these. And I would, I would learn with him mm-hmm. going forward. And we would track down every underground, under-the-table original idea out there and try and figure out the science behind it. Uh, before you knew it, he was uh, the president of the uh, Brain Tumor Foundation, um, the person sort of modeling, leading. Um, if there's one book that I recommend most often these days for people who are going to basically advocate for themselves or someone close to them, it's Ben Williams' book, Surviving Terminal Cancer. So Ben Williams, almost 20 years out now for glioblastoma that had recurred along the way. Um, he was a fireman, I think. He pretty quickly realized that there, the neuro-oncologist didn't know, know a whole lot what to do with his tumor. And he set out to find out everything he could about every possible other therapy. And he wrote this masterful book, which he's updated several times, on every sort of quasi-dendritic cell therapy or Newcastle virus therapy or, you know, the magnetic 
frequency therapies, um, the different supplements, nutrients, what have you. And he was the one really who, who, again, wrote the book on how to compose a portfolio where you say, okay, all hands on deck. We're going to do multiple of these things. The doctors are going to warn us, you know, if they're going to want to more follow sort of a clinical trial, one thing at a time approach. No, there isn't time for that. Not with these kind of cancers. So, um, I think there's, even to imagine that there's someone such as myself, as it were, who somehow has the keys to the cars or whatever, is the person who's probably afraid to learn to drive the car. And so, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't take more than, as you said, will. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you need an MD. I, in some ways, yes, it makes it easier. I can, you know, make calls and they'll sort of go through the secretary, as it were, or what have you. But these days, doctors hardly even talk on the phone anymore. It's all by email. Mm-hmm. And a well-composed email, you know, goes a long way. Mm-hmm. What doesn't work are these sort of meandering, long things that sort of never quite come to the point. And what do you think about this and that? It doesn't work. I mean, you know, you, it's just like all that we're learning with communication, you know, zero in. So um, in terms of people available, uh, Eric Jameson uh, has been studying with me for a long time, takes on his own cases now. Wonderful doing uh, a lot of gastrointestinal kind of cancers. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has his own practice. Great. Um, Sandy Birdwell, who I did the clinical advocacy conference mm-hmm. with, has a full-time practice, um, all comers. Uh, she's a radiation oncologist. Um, uh, Brian Bausch, as you know, um, studied with me as well. Mm-hmm. And also will do that, though he, these days he's... We're enjoying the pleasures of sailing in the South Seas. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, these medical students that we're training, even though there's not a whole lot of them because it's mm-hmm. very time intensive, um, mm-hmm. I believe that they, whatever they go into, they will carry this advocacy strategy. This Why model. don't you start a clinic where the medical students um, practice with people? Well, it's, that's for what we have. Oh, that's, in other words, but... They come and study. It's not a lecture. They're they're in there working with us. Right. You're listening to part two of a two-part conversation with Mark Reniker, MD, and Michael Lerner. But, you know, I'm not one to buy into this. The goal is to scale up. Right. No, I hear you. um, Because you lose this. You lose the... I couldn't agree with you more. So, um, I've always believed that the... All that I can do is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. And just taking a few more patients, as it were, isn't, mm-hmm. isn't the answer. I, I've learned there's a certain number of cases I can take on, and then I'm unhappy. I mean, it, the, the burden of these cases is, is enormous sometimes, and you, right. have to, you have to find the balance with uh, the work and your life and so on. Um, it isn't the number of cases to do. It, it's the idea of the work. Yeah. And so I have always... Truth be told, um, 
you know, we'll, we'll leave a slot for sort of emergency cases or whatever. To, you know, put someone in early. Uh, I'm always a sucker for a kid with a cancer or that kind of thing. I'll, I'll do those cases right away. Mm-hmm. But also, when a fellow physician mm-hmm. is suddenly up against it mm-hmm. and they need help, um, I'll take those cases on mm-hmm. too. And I'll tell you, I do have an ulterior motive, which is they get well. They've learned about Mm -hmm. efficacy through this experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They get it. That that changes things. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's part of that expanding network. Uh, You know, it's so interesting because we've known each other for a very long time. I've been telling people about your work and sending them to you for for 30 years almost. Um, And... I've learned so much today, you know, and it goes to something that you often say about cases, which is, at least that I've heard you say, which is that you've never seen a point in a case at which more attention didn't yield more information, if I understand. I have to tell you, I'm fascinated by this. Yeah. Which is, uh, if I put more hours in... Yeah. At what point does it plateau that right. nothing right. better comes from it? Right. I haven't found that. You haven't found that. And that's my experience. And compared to the sort of ever-lowering standard right. of care right. in general medicine, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of interesting. I mean, yeah. really, it begins to sort of, I mean, you know, sky's the limit, yeah. as it were. The beauty then, though, of sort of the family member self-advocacy strategy is that there is where more time can be found, Mm -hmm. perhaps endless time, Mm -hmm. to really, really reach these heights. Mm -hmm. And that would be another argument, in fact, for do-it-yourself advocacy, Mm -hmm. um, because then I think you can begin to even explore greater heights. I'd like to take a couple of questions, and I'd prefer to take them from people with cancer about a very specific thing. If somebody has a question like that, I'd like to... Yes, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Would you stand up, please, and say your name? Um, my name is Catherine Rowland. I'm a patient of Dr. Hope Hugo, and I'm on a trial, a targeted uh, trial, CYL719, with basal death. And I've been on Fazildes a long time, and I started BYL April before last. Can you tell me what you know about that trial, if anything? Yeah, sure. Um, So BYL is a PI3K inhibitor. It's usually now chosen because there was testing of your... Yeah, there's a mutation. And um, it's quite interesting, oh, well, even coming from Hope, because um, Hope's real smart. She's a master of hormone therapy. And it used to be said that you don't combine hormone therapy with other chemotherapy, because what you want is that hormone therapy will tend to make the cells not divide so well or as much and these other drugs will tend to go and work against something uh, that is is dividing. That's out the window now with these new targeted therapies. And so 
there's a real interest then in combining, as it were, hormone therapy, the Facilidex, uh, with a PI3K. And uh, I have a number of patients who have been on PI3K inhibitors alone who did fantastic. Um, and the Nagorni's testing of PI3K uh, inhibitors, I think, is, is quite predictive. Thank you. Other questions? Anybody there? Okay, how about people who aren't? Oh, Neil, go ahead. Um, Neil, could you stand up? Yeah. My name's Neil, and, and I just got through the process of um, surgery for lung cancer and chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And as I'm going through that and almost have no control over my own life and having no idea what they're doing, and they're not telling me, I also have six stents mm. in my arteries and a variety of other maladies which aren't quite so um, important but affect me. And I have no idea how what they're doing to me is affecting those other things like six stents in my heart yeah. and what the what in the world is going to happen to me while I'm going through surgery and it was a real not pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry to hear that. There's uh, actually an emergence of a new field in oncology called cardio-oncology. Mm-hmm. Called what? Cardio-oncology. So these are cardiologists for the most part who uh, basically take training in oncology uh, or vice versa, most of the major centers have one or two people who would call themselves sort of a cardio-oncology consultant. Um, and seeing who that may be at wherever, was it UCSF? He said, yeah. Um, that would be a starting point. Um, you would think that your medical oncologist or surgical oncologist would right away involve the cardio-oncologist if there were one, but not necessarily. So um, that might be a person who could help bridge and help um, integrate the two therapies around that. Yeah, I also have a real hearing problem and have been shown to have sensitivity to drugs, and chemotherapy has that. And I had to fight through the oncologist and everybody there to get the audiologist and oh, yeah, yeah. those people involved to make sure I wasn't affected. Yeah. There's another uh, piece here, which is there's a drug called dexrazazone, which is to protect the heart from chemotherapy damage. It's mainly been approved and used with children who need to take high doses for different pediatric cancers um, of drugs like adriamycin that will affect the heart. And it's been so interesting, this drug, because there's another drug like it called amifostine. This is really one of the most powerful antioxidants ever invented. Now, as you know, there's this whole other argument not to use antioxidants during cancer therapy, that it's going to make the cancer therapy not work as well. It's going to feed the cancer. A lot of balderdash, to my view. And what proves that, in particular, is the history of dexrazazone. And even this week, 
in uh, one of the major cancer journals was this long collected set of cases of people who'd had dexrazazone as children to protect their heart from the chemo, and then showing that those who did or didn't have it had equally good results with survival 10, 10, 20 years out. So in other words, this idea of antioxidant is still being litigated foolishly, I think, because the studies were done way back when. But anytime you know a doc would say, oh, well, we want you not to be on your antioxidants when you're doing your chemo or radiation, all you have to do is just say, what about dexrazazone? What about amophosting, these two drugs that are designed to protect organs from the damaging of the chemotherapy. Um, the hearing piece of it, the one thing I would tell you that is used, I think, quite well to protect hearing uh, during chemotherapy are uh, sort of antioxidant approaches. So one of the things that would come to mind would be glutathione. Glutathione, which is a compound that the body cells normally produce. Um, and it's the way the body normally cleanses the lungs, the heart, the liver, the brain. And you can get glutathione over the counter, literally. You can get it through a doctor who will give it IV. Um, the IV and the oral um, have about equal blood levels. But um, again, in terms of the, the heresy of all this, so our colleague Keith Block has learned during chemotherapy, he's giving IV glutathione at the same time. So this is a really powerful antioxidant, the intention being to protect the normal cells. Mm. So if you have limited hearing, uh, you obviously want to do everything you can to protect it from getting worse. The tough thing with hearing losses, you sometimes don't know which drugs out there would make it worse. So you have to take a really proactive position on that. So, Mark, in our last five minutes, um, you know, this is, I've always found your work extraordinary, and, and, and I'm so grateful that we've done this together today. And I'm just thinking in a kind of an overview, because we're living in this period of continuous revolution in medical technologies, in cancer therapies, in uh, integrative and functional medicines. Um, And if we just think about the overview that we've described today um, and uh, and your work in clinical advocacy, uh, uh, just if we just start with the, the business of the pathology report alone, the interpretation of the pathology, and not only getting it right and the places that you can get it right, because that's so critical, but the fact that depend, the huge heterogeneity of the tumors, right, mm. which in turn goes as far as the geography as the tumors, and so then, you know, everybody being focused on molecular and genomic testing, and yet from your perspective, uh, the live cell chemosensitivity testing may actually 
be more beneficial, if I heard you correctly. For a given case. For a given case. Um, uh, And then the, you know, uh, cryopreserving of the tumors uh, so that you can do things later and how important it is to have that in place. And all the different forms of additional imaging, additional immunological testing, additional lab uh, testing for uh, liquid biopsies, tumor markers, circulating tumor cells, terrain panels, and so forth. Uh, uh, the, the map mm-hmm. of choice is extraordinarily complex and extraordinarily inaccessible to even motivated cancer patients. There are so few people who understand this. At the same time, as you've said, and I've really taken it in, a motivated patient or parent or friend who just undertakes with laser-like intensity to figure this stuff Mm -hmm. out for one specific person. That's it. I know for a fact that that's doable. Uh, I know for a fact that that's doable. And um, so there's this combination of the overwhelming complexity of the field, but at the same time, the tools, the internet tools, and so on and so forth, that enables exceptional patients or exceptional people who are friends of patients who just have the dedication and the willingness to do this, to sort through this if they're willing to try to own the material. But here's the thing I want, want you to realize is yeah. that they have to do it. Right. If, if they will come to realize, as I do, yeah. that all of this is moving so fast, right. it's so broad, nobody, nobody knows it. Right. Nobody knows it all. Right. I mean, not even, not even close. Right. And so unless you choose to focus it on this one person, right. no one will. Right. It isn't going to come to that. It isn't that somehow sort of the, the, the cavalry of wise men will arrive mm-hmm. who are going to say, ah, this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. It isn't going to happen right. because of this expansiveness. Any last words? <laughs> Mark Reniker, thank you for your work. Thank you for being a pioneer in clinical advocacy. Thank you for being with us at the New You've been listening to part two of a two-part conversation with Mark Reniker and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.